It's great to have on the line with me, Edward Miller. He's uh, been a regular correspondent on particularly the TPP, previously in New Zealand. He's now in KL in Malaysia. Thanks for joining us, Ed. Pleasure to be back on the show, Karen. So, first of all, give us a quick update. What's happening in KL? What's, uh, what's brought you over in that part, to that part of the world? I've just recently taken up a role with um, an organisation called Building and Woodworkers International, which is a global union federation. So the way the global union federations work is effectively you have the situation whereby capital operates multinationally and you need to have responses to be able to uh, on the multinational stage. So I'm now working in the Asia-Pacific region with uh, construction and wood sector unions right throughout the region, um, particularly on projects around uh, China's new investment projects, uh, projects around climate change, projects around migration, all sorts of things, actually. So there'll be a, be a lot of fun. And in terms of Australia-specific projects, um, there'll be some fun stuff happening around on. So that's worth looking out for. Great. Speaking of the uh, multinationals and the and capital, the TPP is obviously this very kind of scary manifestation of the corporate dominance of our society. We've had you bring us up to speed from time to time. Joseph Stiglitz today, the renowned uh, US economist, has uh, made some dire predictions. Give us your uh, your forecast, your statement of where things are at. Okay, so October last year, um, all the heads of state or representatives thereof meeting in, I think it was Atlanta, um, and they managed to flesh out a deal, right? And it was kind of, from a New Zealand perspective anyway, and probably from an Australian perspective, it was the worst possible deal that could have been done because none of the trade benefits or, you know, just the fraction of benefits that we'd been sold um, over the past couple of years have come to fruition, yet all the fears that we've been banging on about about investor-state dispute settlement provisions, about limits to the operation of state-owned enterprises, about costs to the state around things like health and that kind of thing, all were still on the table. So it was the worst of, of all worlds. And for some reason, even though the trade benefits hadn't been won, trade ministers came home patting themselves on the back, drunk as hell, um, and ready to get on with the project of selling the agreement to respective countries. Um, so there is a, a completed deal, and there's a couple of processes that need to be finished before the deal comes into play. The first of those is um, the signing of the agreement. And there's been a little bit of uh, murmuring about what's happening on the signing front, we had heard rumours that there would be a signing ceremony taking place in New Zealand. There hadn't been negotiations in New Zealand for a long time because we'd got quite good at uh, holding protests and shutting them down. And we actually had another round of protests on the 15th of November where we managed to get another 10,000 people on the street. So that was good. But unfortunately, it was the same day that the terror attacks happened in Paris. We got almost zero media coverage, which was a bit of a shame. But anyway... The movement is still there and still kicking. Um, last week, the Chilean government put out a press release saying that the signing will be taking place in New Zealand, but there was no mention of the exact location. Um, the date is 4th of February. 
New Zealand government then came out saying, well, we don't know what's going on. No, no idea that that's happening. But it, it has been corroborated by other sources, so we can be pretty safe knowing that the signing will take place in New Zealand. But signing does not mean implementation of the agreement. So it's a photo opportunity where a bunch of ministers can get together and again pat, pat each other on the back and, and drink state-payer, state-funded alcohol, except for the Malaysian ministers who don't do that. Um, what happens after that is there's a process called certification that takes place, which is where the U.S. goes through basically every piece of legislation in each country that they don't like, and they say um, they take that piece of legislation, confront that country, hold them over a barrel and say, if you don't change this according to what we want, then we will delay implementation of the agreement until we get what we want. So that's another added line of pressure that the U.S. imposes on all the other um, countries. And then the final thing that happens is ratification. <clears throat> and ratification is when the agreement actually comes into implementation. Now, the big question is around ratification, whether it will actually be possible under any kind of future U.S. government. I mean, Trump, or representing the frontrunner in the Republican race so far, has come out saying that DPP is not a good deal and it's a hand up to China or whatever. I don't really understand his line, but it's, you know, classic U.S. populism, Republican kind of stuff. Mm. And then from the Democrats, Hillary has come out saying that she has reservations about the agreement. Uh, again, this is just populism. She's spoken in favor of it um, years into the past. So the the question of ratification will not be decided until at least after the U.S. election. Uh, it won't take place in a big ceremony like the signing will, because the signing is very much a sort of, um, it's a, how you say, a symbolic gesture, whereas ratification is a legal process whereby it actually comes into play. So that's around about where we sit right now. Signing's on the way, certification will follow that, and then ratification, some gloomy date in the future, but still unclear and will be determined by the U.S. political process. We won't take any of what you've just said there as a uh, suggestion that uh, our American comrades should vote Trump. <laughs> but should vote. Should vote. So last week, uh, Trans-Canada Corporation filed a, a lawsuit in U.S. federal court alleging President Obama's rejection of the Keystone XL pipeline ex exceeded his power under the U.S. Constitution. Uh, this was uh, was done through the framework of NAFTA. Uh, now, Obama quite recently has denied, uh, you know, any, I guess, parallels between NAFTA and TPP and that, uh, you know, NAFTA was uh, 20 years old and TPP is brand new and shiny. But, of course, there's uh, some real concerns here about the investor-state dispute settlement. Talk to us about this. So this is the very of what we've been trying to explain both the New Zealand public and more widely about the threats that this kind of an agreement poses. Uh, there is absolutely parallels between Chapter 9, the, investor, uh, the investment chapter of NAFTA and the investment chapter of the TPP. One is based on the other with a couple of tweaks according to what uh, various political machinations in the negotiation process required. What this essentially means, I mean, if we go back a little bit at the struggle to stop Keystone XL, you had this huge coalition of indigenous activists, of trade unionists, of environmentalists, of academics, all these kind of people who were willing to put their lives, their bodies, and their criminal records on the line so as to make sure that this 
uh, project didn't go ahead because what this project was, was essentially this long pipeline was a fuse to blow up the carbon bomb that is the tar sands that sits in the northern Canada, which is climate chaos into the future, right? So President Obama responds to this enormous movement after years and years of struggle and says, yes, I accept that there's some sort of argument here. Basically, it was only due to low hydrocarbon prices or low oil prices that he eventually decided to listen to sectorists. Well, it's not like a years-long struggle, but what happened is Obama said, yes, let's get rid of this project. It's not in anyone's interest right now. And then after a democratic decision is made, then all of a sudden massive lawsuit, $15 billion. So probably I think this is the largest investor state dispute settlement claim of all time. Um, huge amount of money, and you can be not going to come out of the U.S. military budget. It will come out of something like the health budget or the education budget or something like that. So there is this huge claim now lodged against the U.S. government. And Just on that, Ed, if you don't, don't mind me interrupting, uh, I think it's really interesting, the $15 billion, What is that made up of? Uh, I think it would be instructive for our listeners to actually understand uh, you know, the process here. Yeah, so that $15 billion represents lost profits which TransCanada would have otherwise made had the project gone ahead, right? And it's based on all these rosy future economic predictions about the cost of what oil will be in the future and the amount of money that they expect they'd be able to make from this project. But actually, it's money that's never been spent. It's not money that they've actually lost. You know, you can't look at TransCanada's balance sheets and find that money having been lost at all. They haven't spent $15 billion. That's what they thought they would lose as a result. And it will depend on how the decision is decided at the end of the day. But there's some very sophisticated legal minds that are doing their best and have very deep pockets to make sure that that $15 billion is sucked out of the health or education budgets of the United States. In fact, the the guy who is representing TransCanada is the same guy who represented Morris in the case uh, against Australia, mm. which was actually an unsuccessful case, just because the Australian government threw millions and millions of dollars into, into making sure it was unsuccessful. But the problem is, even if you lose these cases, you end up paying out tens of million dollars in legal fees, and it's the lawyers that win at the end of the day. Mm. This is the real threat that we're talking about here. Democracy gets thrown out the window, and it doesn't matter if you win or lose, you're still a financial loser in the balance sheet at the end of the day. Look, I wonder, obviously, uh, you know, Paris uh, talks uh, just in the wake of those. Climate change, obviously, is, is not going to be... I mean, there's obviously a very poor deal that came out of the, the, the Paris uh, climate talks. Talk to us about the, you know, the, the links here between the TPP and climate change. Yeah, I spent a couple of days in Paris by some strange twist of space. I was there and managed to spend some time in the NGO space there. Um, I, because of my sort of late um, arrival to Paris, I wasn't able to get official accreditation. But I felt there was a real lack of understanding about the interaction between climate change agreements and, and the the international architecture, which we're talking about in terms of TPP and its transatlantic uh, cousin TTIP and, and also TISA, the Trade and Services Agreement, none of this stuff really comes into play with the, the majority of, of, of activists and, and diplomats and that kind of thing that are there. They're there solely to sort out this one agreement. And this one agreement is, uh, in terms of how international law works, sits below the 
um, economic agreements in terms of hierarchy. So these economic agreements trump the climate agreements, <clears throat> which means that it doesn't matter how good a uh, negotiation you have or how good an outcome comes from the negotiation, it will always lose in terms of hierarchy of international law to economic agreements. And that's something that's really, really scary. Mm. It also means, uh, to my mind, that a lot of activists who are uh, spending way too much time on the wrong project. We should be tackling these economic agreements and investment agreements here because that's where the real struggle sits. Um, and ultimately, it just, just means that it doesn't matter how, how good a, a result you have, how protesters, how effective your developing bloc or indigenous bloc or trade union bloc at these negotiations are, they're always going to come up second best until we can solve this issue of the economic agreements that are really sitting at the core of, of both uh, our countries and, and the corporations' demands. So it's absolutely critical that we deal with this agenda first, and then we can start to talk about it. I mean, the climate crisis is absolutely urgent, but in terms of uh, addressing these problems, this, this, to my mind, comes up number one.